the brain is by far the most complex organ in our body. I think a lot of us realize that. And we're just beginning to understand how it works and discover it. But at the same time, because of this complexity, that complexity gives way to many possible diseases, such as stroke, to autism, to Alzheimer's. And today with us, we have Dr. Ajit, who specializes in imaging the brain and discovering and then treating those diseases through neuroimaging. So Dr. Ajit, how are you? Hi, I'm good. Thank you for inviting me. All right, so why don't we start a bit about a brief introduction about yourself. So I'm a, I'm a neuroradiologist, uh, meaning that I'm a radiologist that focuses on the nervous system, on imaging of the nervous system, basically the brain and spine. Um, but specifically, I also, uh, I'm also an interventional neuroradiologist, uh, which means I'm involved in treatment of vascular disease of the brain and spine. Uh, some of which you mentioned, like stroke, obviously, which is a hot topic recently, uh, but also aneurysms, uh, vascular malformations, um, and so forth. Like a bit about myself from before, I can tell that uh, I uh, grew up in Israel. Um, I trained as a, I studied medicine in Israel, and uh, I did my residency over there um, uh, in Hadassah Hospital in Jerusalem, if anybody knows. Um, and then I came to Canada for subspecialty. Israel is a small place. Uh, back then, there was no um, subspecialty available in neuroradiology. Uh, so I came to Toronto to U of T to do my subspecialty. Uh, my husband is a psychiatrist, so he did his uh, subspecialty in Toronto as well. And eventually, we chose to stay um, in Canada. And uh, we've been here since uh, more or less 2001, so many years now. That's amazing. Um, could you talk to us about your short-term and long-term goals as a neuroradiologist and a cerebrovascular imaging researcher? So uh, I guess um, short-term goals uh, are to, you know, succeed in treating as many patients as possible and uh, do a good job. That's from the clinical point of view, obviously. Um, uh, from the uh, research point of view, I would say that um, I would like to have, I wanted to have, and hopefully I will have some impact on the, um, on the field of neurointervention. So my research focuses mostly um, on, it's a combination of my diagnostic part of uh, clinical life and my intervention. So I would like to have uh, an impact on uh, treatments, of an, on interventional neuroradiology treatments, if it is to describe how to diagnose them using uh, non-invasive imaging that has developed significantly in the last 20 years, uh, or how to follow up those diseases, or how to um, um, use new products uh, during treatments or prevent complications. So my goal, and uh, I am specifically oriented towards uh, clinical impact. I am not a basic scientist, uh, but uh, as an interventionalist, I did participate in studies uh, coming out of Canada, and I can elaborate later, uh, that touch also basic science aspects of um, neurovascular disease. That's, that's really interesting. And could you talk a little bit about one of these diseases that, um, that you do focus on, for example, aneurysms or stroke? Do you want to talk a little bit more about the neurobiology of it, especially from a vascular perspective? 
Yeah, so um, um, there are three, uh, let's speak about aneurysms first. So aneurysms, for example, of the brain uh, is a disease that we don't unfortunately not know much about yet. Uh, we know that some, uh, some of them are familial and probably genetically inherited, but most of them are not. Um, and if we look up, uh, we can't predict who will really have an aneurysm. And worse than that, we can't still predict which aneurysm is going to bleed. So as you know, the problem with brain aneurysms is usually not the fact that they exist, but more the problem that they could uh, pop and bleed. And when they bleed, it's a disaster. Um, and uh, because neuroimaging, the diagnostic part, has um, developed so significantly in the recent years, more and more people are diagnosed with aneurysms before they even present clinically. So who doesn't have a headache, goes and have a CT or an MRI, and uh, we pick up an aneurysm, and what do we do now? And we see uh, at clinic many patients like that, that we have to tell them, um, let's treat the aneurysm or not treat the aneurysm. We have to, to make a decision. Uh, unfortunately, we don't have a good way to predict which ones are gonna bleed. Uh, we rely on statistics such as size or the look of the aneurysm, if it looks ugly to us, not round and nice, but really we know the patients come with tiny aneurysms that look beautiful and they bleed. Um, so this is, a, a, you know, the neurobiology of aneurysms. Why do they happen? Um, uh, who will get them? Uh, maybe in the future they will be able, we will be able to treat them with a drug, you know, um, and make them go away. Uh, unfortunately, treating an aneurysm is not without risk, and so we can't just treat all of them. Um, and uh, recently, there is a, a study coming out of Calgary. Um, uh, Dr. Mayank Goyal is, is uh, leading it. Um, and we're all participating in trying to, well, it's going to start soon, uh, because there is um, a thought that aneurysms are an inflammatory process. Uh, and that we can maybe treat, the, treat them and make them bleed less with uh, giving simple aspirin. Uh, so we're going to give aspirin to every patient we treat and see who does better and so forth. Uh, we do look at aneurysms with high-resolution MRI imaging and look at the wall of the aneurysm, trying to see if the inflammation will show uh, uh, in this way. And there are scientists from Finland where aneurysms are very, very common that actually when they clip an aneurysm with open surgery, they take the aneurysm itself and look at it in pathology and they're trying to see if there is inflammation in the wall. So that's one a neurobiology process. Um, stroke, which is a, you know, a big, big uh, um, uh, disease that hurts many people. Uh, of course, uh, you probably heard that in the last 10 years, there has been advances, have been advances in the treatment of stroke that are remarkable. Um, we know now that there, there have been a few studies. One of the big ones, ESCAPE, came out of Canada, also from the Calgary group and us at UHN, we participated. And we showed that if you treat, if you take a patient, take them to the angel suite, take the clot out fast enough, patients will do very, very well. Uh, but what happens in this time between when the uh, uh, stroke symptoms began and until we uh, take out the clot, we know that time is brain. 
uh, and that there is a cascade that happens. Uh, the moment the brain cells don't get oxygen, they start dying because there is a cascade that happens with enzymes uh, and receptors and uh, um, uh, you know uh, materials that get poured into the synapse and they kill the cells. Uh, and this happens until we open up the vessels. Uh, so Dr. Timiansky, who was the chief uh, neurosurgeon in, uh, at UHN, uh, this is his, uh, I would say, life work. He has de developed a drug uh, to try and slow this cascade. It's a protein, protein that um, uh, connects to a receptor that stops the cascade of pouring poisonous, poisonous stuff into the uh, synapse and is aimed to protect the brain uh, cells until the interventionalist like me can come in and open the vessel. Uh, this, is, this study was uh, done in, uh, already in animals and also some of it already in, uh, uh, in humans. It was published in The Lancet, it's called Escape NA1. Again, collaboration, a Canadian collaboration and many centers participated. Um, AVMs of the brain, I don't know if you know what AVM is, but it's a vascular, high flow vascular malformation of the brain. Uh, these can bleed and cause a terrible outcome. Uh, there are scientists from uh, our hospital at uh, the Toronto Western Hospital, Dr. Ivan Radovanovic, uh, and uh, one of my interventional colleagues, uh, uh, Dr. Vitor Pereira and Dr. Timo Krings, they looked at blood from patients with AVMs, also resected material from AVMs, uh, and they found a gene mutation that can uh, uh, cause uh, these malformations. So these are all the neurobiology, and this is just happening in Canada, you know? So uh, yeah, there is a lot, a lot to look at. There is little that we know about these disease processes. And uh, I'm, I have no doubt that this will, you know, uh, be big in the future. That's amazing. I mean, it's incredible how complicated all these diseases are and how, you know, especially with the brain, there's so little that we know right now and that we're right. trying to find out. So as a neuroradiologist and a neuroimaging expert, what's your role in the papers that you talked about? For example, the escape study, what, you know, what so many, many of the studies, I'm the person who takes out the clot. Um, I'm the neurointerventionalist, and so I'm the person who, uh, together with a stroke neurologist, recruit a patient, say, okay, he's good for this study, let's enroll and, uh, you know, uh, ask the patient permission to enroll them, and then we take out the clot, and then uh, we collect the patients, basically, and treat them uh, for the study. Uh, if we'll start giving aspirin, we are the ones that say, okay, it's good to go, give the patient aspirin, speak to the patient, convince them to participate. Um, and coil the aneurysm, treat the aneurysm, and uh, um, yeah. So I'm not the basic science part of things in these uh, in this aspect. I'm the more uh, practical person in the field, doing the cases and collecting the patients. Obviously, there is involvement in drafting the papers and discussion and all that. Um, and uh, from the uh, and my own papers that I initiate are more about. Um, uh, tips and uh, complications and how do the patients after these treatments look on imaging because the more treatments you perform, uh, the more diverse outcomes and looks we have on imaging and we have to know them. So we've been doing successful EVT, endovascular thrombectomy for stroke patients in the last 10 years. 
And uh, there are new things we see on imaging. And uh, so I like to describe those, explain those. Um, for example, uh, CT scanners. Uh, when I started my subspecialty even, CT scanners were much slower. Um, it took a lot of time to, uh, you know, to scan the head and neck. Uh, and so for most diseases, vascular diseases of the head and neck, we had to actually do an angiogram, which is an invasive thing. We had to puncture the arteries, put a, put a catheter in them, inject contrast and look at the vessels. Uh, and so if a patient, for example, came with an aneurysm to the hospital, we had to do an angiogram, then send the patient back to the ICU. Okay, think about what to do call anesthesia and do the case. Nowadays, CT scans are so fast um, that we can scan in any phase, arterial, venous, parenchymal, the whole head and neck. And we do that first, we see the aneurysm, we plan the treatment and we bring the patient only when anesthesia is ready and we're ready to go. So this, you know, so um, saying that CTA is good enough, this is one of my publications saying that, hey, we can stop doing angiograms. Uh, and we can just do CT angiogram, non-invasive technique. We see it good enough. We can plan the treatment good enough. We can decide what to do next. And this took time to convince people, uh, you know, that this is good enough and we can, and the surgeon to look at CTA and say, okay, I can clip this aneurysm. I don't need an angiogram anymore. Um, so, yeah. It's complicated how, it's like, it's really amazing how complicated this process is. But if you were to look, uh, what are the, some of the biggest challenges in cerebrovascular imaging today? And what do you think this field is headed in the future? Well, I think radiology in general has boomed, like expanded. You know, I have uh, the, um, I can look back, right? And uh, I started as a volunteer. Uh, I happened to be a volunteer in radiology for a year when I was 18. Um, and the CT scanners back then were very new. Uh, I'm talking 30 years ago or more. Uh, and these scanners, I remember we were able to scan maybe seven patients uh, per day, you know, in a full working day from eight to five. Um, a scan of the brain took probably maybe two hours. A patient would lie on the CT scanner for an hour or two to get a scan. Now a CT scan, a plain CT of the brain is 40 seconds. Um, so radiology used to be, not in my time, but my teachers, it used to be a very uh, small field uh, relatively of plain films, you know, x-rays, chest x-rays and, um, and some injections. Uh, angiogram uh, is many years old, but um, planar imaging, looking at sectional imaging, is, is a 30-year-old or 35-year-old thing. Um, so radiology has become an amazing field to be involved with in the last few years with CT and MR. People received Nobel Prizes for these developments. Uh, Angiogram also is a Nobel Prize, uh, I think, or I'm not sure. The developer got it maybe for something else, actually. Uh, but um, radiology has developed uh, extremely and uh, endovascular treatment, uh, which is part of radiology originally, uh, has done the same. So the better machines we have, uh, the better quality of uh, imaging we have, uh, the better protection for the person who performs the procedure and the better um, equipment 
that we have uh, coils, stents, catheters, uh, even from the time when I began my fellowship in interventional in 2003 uh, until now, doing an angiogram is so much easier. It's so fat, so much faster. Um, in the last 10 years, treatment of stroke, when I was a fellow, we would try to get out the clot. I would say we were successful maybe, maybe 30% of the time. Now we're success, successful about 90 or maybe more percent of the time. Now when we can't get the clot out, we're a little bit surprised and shocked. We forget that 10 years ago, we, we would stand there and we were unsuccessful and it was devastating. So this field I think has a lot to look forward to. Um, I think technique will just develop uh, more and more. And I think uh, just like other fields in medicine, um, uh, interventional uh, minimal invasive procedures uh, will eventually take over. So you talked about how, how all these different technologies, you know, improved over time, but are there any technologies that are sort of just emerging right now that you're excited for? Sure, sure, sure. So um, robotics is a big thing now. Uh, so uh, we were involved, uh, the leader at our center is Dr. Vitor Pereira uh, at the Toronto Western Hospital. And he was, uh, uh, he is using, and we have published a paper already about that, of using a robot uh, to perform endovascular treatment. Um, and why is this uh, important? It's actually important more in a country like Canada, which is a, a very big country. Uh, and you cannot, probably won't be able to have an interventional neuroradiologist at every remote uh, hospital, right? So uh, we get patients with aneurysms, with stroke uh, from uh, helicoptered from remote uh, areas of Canada all the time. The problem, for example, with stroke is that time is brain. Um, and uh, even the fastest helicopter, you know, the patient had the helicopter has to be booked, it has to arrive, the patient has to be transferred. Uh, and in medicine, these things take a long time. Think about if a, um, a ba uh, an interventionalist who has very basic knowledge uh, that on the very and everyday uh, life does uh, just basic procedures that are needed in every hospital could use a robot, you know, hook it up. Um, and a neurointerventionalist who sits in Toronto or in Montreal or in Vancouver can do the procedure remotely from their hospital or from home. So this is what Dr. Pereira is doing now. And he uh, already, and we at our center coiled a few aneurysms like that, uh, put in stents, coils. So this is probably the, bex uh, the next big thing. And along with robotics, I think something that personally I've been reading is, for example, artificial intelligence in, in diagnosing um, yeah. I've read about heart disease. Is, is that something that's emerging in the neuroimaging field too with artificial intelligence? Yes, yes for sure. So, you know, artificial intelligence is uh, something diagnostic radiologists are a little bit afraid of uh, that will replace them in the future. I, I, I have to tell you, it is big in neuroimaging as well. I must tell you, I'm not worried. I think that, um, as I just said, uh, when I was uh, 18, you could do eight cases of uh, uh, eight CTs a day. Now I can't even count how many hundreds of cases or, or of scans every machine can produce. 
And you know, uh, at the end of the day, most scans are normal. Most CTs of the brain are normal. And uh, uh, the load of work on uh, an average radiologist is enormous. Um, and uh, there is, uh, you know, uh, people get tired, people get, uh, you know, um, and um, artificial intelligence can help. You know, if a computer can look at the scan and say, okay, this is 99% normal, um, and we can decide as a society that we count on this computer and we only look at whatever is uh, not called normal, that would be great. I mean, uh, if a patient comes into the ER, you know, there is lag of reporting of the case, sometimes 20 minutes. And sometimes 20 minutes is a big deal uh, for a person's life. Uh, if a computer can say, hey, this is flagged, you have to look at it right now, immediate when the scan comes out, because there is a bleed or there is a midline shift and the surgeon has to look at it now, that could be great. So absolutely artificial intelligence, people are working on it and it's, it's gonna be a big thing in the future, I'm sure. One thing I just, something I just thought of about something that you mentioned previously is for example, with, uh, with aneurysms, you don't know which one bleeds or not. I mean, who knows if, for example, artificial intelligence could be used to, based on the, the morphological aspects, for example, the shape, you know, the roundness or whatnot, if that could help. Um, to get score of some sort. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But I think with aneurysm, it's, it's really not the, that's not the answer probably. That's what we're using right now. I think the answer of which aneurysm is going to bleed is somewhere else. Uh, maybe detection of inflammation. Uh, maybe somehow we'll be able to say how thin is the wall. Uh, you know, because surgeons, when they look at an aneurysm, uh, you know, gross, grossly really looking at it, uh, you can see thin areas in the aneurysm, thinner and not thinner. Uh, we don't know if these are the areas that bleed, but might, maybe th they are. Uh, maybe it's going to be genetics. Maybe if you have a certain gene and you have an aneurysm, then it's going to bleed for sure. You know, so I think that maybe there will be artificial intelligence in that direction. But I don't think the shape is, is the way to go. This is the retarded way we use now. Uh, but it's obviously not the perfect way to predict. Yeah. Uh, so you've talked a lot about your clinical research, but could you also talk to us a little about uh, your involvements outside of clinical research? So most of my work is uh, clinical. Um, and um, I, uh, so first of all, I have clinical work. So what I do on an everyday basis, if anybody is thinking to be a radiologist, is uh, I read scans. I read MRs of the brain, uh, MRs of the spine, uh, CT of the brain and spine. Um, and um, uh, that's what I do about three days a week. Uh, one to two, day, uh, to two days a week, I'm involved with endovascular um, procedures. And one day a week, we have a multidisciplinary clinic at the Toronto Western Hospital, which is a vascular clinic. And uh, we share this clinic among the interventional neuroradiologists, the stroke neurologist, and the vascular neurosurgeons. And we see patients that are referred to us or that we treated um, with vascular diseases of the brain and spine. Also, because I've been in this uh, system for a while, uh, I'm involved with work with societies that uh, uh, are um, neurointerventional societies, for example, uh, I'm a member of the executive committee of the World Federation of Interventional 
and Therapeutic Neuroradiology. Um, this is a large uh, society that, uh, in, uh, that um, uh, has uh, meetings and uh, has uh, all kinds of, um, uh, you know, does all kinds of stuff, uh, educational um, and um, uh, meetings and uh, involved in grants and support for people who uh, uh, do uh, neurointerventional treatment. Um, so I'm involved in that society. I'm uh, uh, lately a little bit uh, more involved with uh, trying to involve more women uh, in our uh, practice. Uh, you know, women are about 50% of uh, medical students now in many, many countries, but they, for some reason or many reasons, um, tend to be involved in surgical professions less than men still. And neurointerventional is no exception. We have maybe 15% maybe women practicing INR. Uh, and we want to make this, uh, to change this. Uh, also, women are less involved in um, academic medicine uh, throughout all specialties. And this is something also that uh, we would like to uh, change. So one of the reasons I agreed to participate in the, this uh, podcast was that um, I conducted a survey, uh, which will be published soon, uh, about uh, women in interventional neuroradiology. And we found out that one of the things that women lack is role models. Uh, because women go less into surgical professions and because women are not uh, a common uh, thing in interventional neuroradiology, uh, other women probably uh, think that, well, that's too difficult for me or, you know, I can't do that. And um, it is clear now uh, in other professions as well, neurosurgery and other uh, uh, professions, is that there is a, a, there is a need for uh, women uh, to become role models and to become mentors. Uh, for uh, medical students um, and uh, residents in, in uh, different professions um, to lead them, you know, to, to be a good example and to lead other women through uh, this profession. So this is actually why I agreed to participate uh, because I, I would guess you probably have less women than men um, that, <clears throat> that can do that, so... And so apart from uh, appearing on the podcast, which we're very, very grateful for, what other approaches do you take to get more women involved and all that? Do you go to conferences, teach? Yeah, so I try. So uh, for, for, I present in conferences a lot. I uh, do teaching for medical students, obviously, and uh, even more for residents and fellows, uh, teaching one-on-one -on -one how to read scans, teaching one-on-one uh, -on -one how to perform interventional. There is a mentorship uh, program in our uh, radiology um, uh, service. I'm the uh, I'm the one I'm the um, um, neuroradiology fellowship uh, representative or in charge of the neuroradiology fellows in, at the Toronto Western Hospital. Um, so I try to have a presence. Um, uh, from the WFITN uh, committee point of view, um, we had a special session for women in interventional neuroradiology in the last uh, conference we had in Naples um, pre-corona. Uh, and we spoke about it. You know, I think speaking about it is an important thing. Um, it is important to um, make people understand that there is a gender gap 
uh, people accept it, and then we go from there. If you were to look back in your journey, uh, could you talk to us a little about your journey and how you basically got and you, how you basically became a neuroradiologist and a clinical researcher? Yeah, so that's uh, interesting. So um, I, I'm one of those who uh, wanted to be a doctor as long as I remember myself. And I'm not embarrassed to uh, admit it. You know, among uh, physicians, there's many people who say, oh, I, I don't know how I got here. I don't believe them. I think you have to work hard to get uh, to become a doctor. Uh, and I wanted to be a doctor from, I don't know, age six. Why did I want this? I don't know. This is just something I wanted. My parents are not physicians. Uh, but somehow, uh, this is one I knew what I wanted to do. And so I worked hard. I was a, I was a, you know, I was a good student. I tried to get good marks. I did everything I needed to get into medical school. In Israel, you get into medical school after uh, high school. It's not like in Canada. Uh, there is no, um, you know, uh, you don't do your BA first and then apply. So in, in a way, it's a little bit less complicated, uh, but it is difficult to get in like anywhere else. Uh, and then, so I knew I wanted to be a doctor, but I did not think far enough uh, of what in medicine I want to do. It was really not um, something I even thought about. And I, and I really didn't know much about medicine, uh, to say the, the truth. Um, and so in Israel, you have seven years to think about what kind of doctor you want to be, because you do your undergraduate and everything in medical school. Um, and um, I must say, I really liked the surgical professions. I really liked surgery. Um, I thought that uh, I would become a surgeon of some kind. Um, eventually, I did not become a surgeon. And it's an interesting question of how that happened. Um, I think part of it is thinking that surgery, the lifestyle of a, of a surgeon is not easy and and I think that maybe being a woman, I took this into consideration. I wanted to have a family and kids, and I do have four kids. Um, and maybe I thought, well, that will be too much. Uh, but it was also the harsh environment that I, that I saw in the surgical professions. And I hope this is happening less and less, but you know, bullying is part of of unfortunately medicine and of life and also in, uh, in the surgical profession, it's a little bit more harsh and I didn't like that part. And these were days that the bullying was not even hidden. It was part of, you know, making you tougher and making you a surgeon. And I didn't like that part. And then somehow somebody I know said, Renit, you really should come to rounds in radiology. It's, it's, I, she was a radiology resident and she said, it's a great profession, you should come. And you know, radiology doesn't have a lot of uh, hype. It's a quiet, it's a quiet profession. It's like pathology, radiology, it's a service uh, um, medical uh, uh, department. Uh, so there was no, uh, you know, uh, macho thing going on and uh, you don't see patients so much although it's not completely true and I went with her and actually I went to rounds and the chief of radiology at the Hadassah hospital back there his name was uh, professor Barziv was an amazing radiologist 
he he was he knew uh, he was not uh, subspecialized. He was good in everything. He was a pediatric uh, radiologist, but he read every kind of scan. He was one of those who moved with time and could read CT and MRI, even though it happened during his 40s, already 50s. Um, and he, and you could see how he looks at a scan as a riddle. You know, you have some clinical information, you have a picture, and you're the one who's going to solve the riddle of what this patient has. And it was a wonderful thing to see. He could say from a CT, what's the hemoglobin of the patient, you know? And he was right most of the time. And it was an amazing thing to, to see and to watch. And uh, since I was a meticulous person, I like to look at the little things of everything, I decided this is good for me. And I went into radiology and uh, um, you know, said, okay, I'll have to be a humble doctor that the patient doesn't really know. Uh, you know, nobody knows who made the diagnosis, although it's the radiologist. And, and uh, uh, the, um, uh, the funny thing is, or the interesting thing is that eventually I did stream towards uh, a kind of a surgical part of radiology, right? So although uh, I decided not to become a surgeon, I eventually ended up being a kind of a surgeon because endovascular treatment is, a, is a very similar to surgery. The, the, the lifestyle is not great. Uh, you know, now the treatment to, uh, for stroke is uh, so good. Uh, we get up at night much more and we have to do call much more. And uh, we treat patients hands-on and we have complications. Uh, so eventually uh, I ended up, I guess, where I was supposed to be, uh, even though I went uh, into it through radiology. By the way, nowadays you can become a, neuro a neurointerventionalist uh, also from other professions, mostly neurology and neurosurgery. Um, so, you know, looking back at the path I chose, um, maybe if I, if I was more confident or wouldn't worry as much about my uh, life and the career, uh, maybe I would have chosen to go into neurosurgery. I think it's a tougher residency for sure. Uh, but I think neurosurgeons um, uh, have more clinical background when they come to neurointervention. And this is something I think radiology uh, people sometimes lack. Uh, in the future, by the way, I think that neurointervention should become a profession that's, uh, that you, you go into from the beginning. So you don't become a resident of radiology. You don't become a resident of neurology. You don't become a resident in neurosurgery. You're a neurointerventional resident, and then you can rotate in neurosurgery maybe for a year or two, rotate in neurology for a year, rotate in radiology for a year or two, and become a more you know rounded neurointervention, well-rounded uh, neurointerventionalist. That's amazing. I think you know even though neuroimaging uh, isn't as you said a macho field, um, not it's very macho. important. Yeah, it's <laughs> yeah. it's not. But but at the same time, it's very 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 important. Uh, I think my message is uh, yeah. mainly for women. I think uh, women should uh, women who graduate from medical school uh, should have no fear and no doubt in their abilities. 
Uh, and it's shown in, in, in papers that women doubt their abilities more than men do. I think they should have no fear, no doubt, should go after whatever they want to do. They can do anything in medicine. And I think they, sh and if they doubt it, they should find a role model, a mentor, uh, who is a woman that does whatever they want to do and uh, uh, reach out and uh, get support and do it. Well, Dr. Jid, it's been a pleasure, truly a pleasure to talk to you. And we really appreciate you coming on the podcast. Thank you very much for inviting me.